Hello, my name is Thomas Berezovsky, and I'm the director of Two Journeys Ministry, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. I usually work behind the scenes, so it's a pleasure to fill in today. Today, we will be looking at an overview of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is the next book that will be covered in the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. So, Andy, tell us about the church in Corinth and what we can learn from Paul's ministry to them. Well, I had the privilege uh, for many weeks of preaching through 1 Corinthians and uh, walking through those 16 chapters of what I consistently called a dysfunctional church. Uh, it was a church struggling with divisions, factions and divisions. There was a tremendous amount of pride. Uh, they were set in a very uh, immoral, pagan city, and they themselves struggled with sexual immorality. Uh, members of their church were visiting temple prostitutes, so Paul had to address that. There was uh, a case of immorality that should have led to church discipline that he addresses. Uh, he just walks through one issue after another with that dysfunctional church in 1 Corinthians, and uh, it's very beneficial for us to understand their dysfunctionality because many of those same themes uh, can uh, assault local churches today. And so, though it was very tough for them and very grievous for the Apostle Paul, it's helpful for us uh, as he walks through those issues one after another, addressing marriage problems, divorce issues. Uh, you know, members were taking each other to court, lawsuits among members, um, problems with the Lord's Supper, issues, doctrinal issues uh, where they were doubting the resurrection. Uh, issues of women, gender, gender roles, and women leading out in worship, and Paul having to address that. Issues with spiritual gifts, uh, speaking in tongues, prophecy, things like that. So he walks through all of that. Second Corinthians is different. It's a different feel. It's the same congregation. That all that dysfunctionality almost certainly was still going on. But in Second Corinthians, it's much more personal. It's a personal letter from Paul, and he has to defend his ministry against a group of people we don't know very much about, but he calls them the super apostles who considered him superior to Paul and who were discrediting Paul's ministry and attacking it. And so Paul gives a lot of his own personal insights in the ministry of the gospel. And in so doing, he gives us a lasting defense for evangelism itself or missions, sharing the gospel, a sense of the superiority, the glory even of the new covenant and many other things as well tied to the person of Paul, his motivations, his ministry, things like that. And there'll be other topics that come up similar to 1 Corinthians, such as uh, Christian giving. Uh, we'll talk about various things like that. But I think that's where we can continue to get benefit from these two epistles, both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So it's going to be exciting to walk through 2 Corinthians. just a great, great book. Now, Andy, you talked about how they're similar, how are 1st and 2nd Corinthians different from each other? Right, so he has to address the topics one after another in 1st Corinthians, and he brings up new topics sometimes with the phrase, now about X. So you get the feeling like he's going through a laundry list of, of issues, uh, and it really feels that way. You don't get that same feeling in 2nd Corinthians. Uh, Paul, for example, in, in chapter 1 has to address his change of plans. He had said he was going to come there. He doesn't. He has to make, you know, give, give an explanation more personally of, of why he changed his mind, and that, that you know, was wasn't uh, anything significant, but just had to do with uh, some things that were pressing on him and his reasons for, for that. So it, you get a feeling right away of it being very personal. He's talking about his own thought process, his own motivations, and we're going to see that. And as a result, we're going to end up, 
I think, wanting to imitate the Apostle Paul in his motivations in evangelism and his zeal for the glory of God, things like that. So the benefit overall for this this two-volume set of Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, is is almost immeasurable. But in the second book, we're going to see much more of a personal thought process, personal motivations that we, I think the Holy Spirit's encouraging us to take on ourselves, that we would have a similar set of motivations in ministering the gospel. Now, you say it's more personal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paul does seem to spend a lot of time talking about his own ministry, his Mm -hmm. credentials, his Mm -hmm. motives in 2 Corinthians. Why is that? Why do you think the Holy Spirit wanted that in the Bible for every generation of Christians to study? Yeah, so before I answer that, I just, I just want to elevate that question and just let it stand on its own. Why did the Holy Spirit want this in the Bible? I would commend that as a permanent question for every book of the Bible and even every passage. I have it on my mind continually as I'm preaching through the book of Job. Job is a long book, and you know, as you walk through the chapters in Job, you start to say, you know, why is this in here? Why did it make it into Holy Writ so that we're reading it, you know, millennia later? Uh, And it's always helpful for us to realize there's an intentionality uh, of Almighty God or God the Holy Spirit in giving us every single chapter of all the 42 chapters of Job. Every one of them is beneficial. And so it just flows from the statement Paul made in Second Second Timothy uh, chapter three: all all scriptures God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. So in general, I just want to commend that uh, to all the listeners of this podcast. Just learn to ask that question, assuming there's a very good answer. Now we're not always going to know because we don't know the mind of the Spirit, but more and more we do because the Spirit imprints His mind on ours, and we're able to see some motivation. So I think primarily I would answer the question uh, here. Paul is presented to us as a role model. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ, Mm. he says to the Corinthians. So we are supposed to imitate him. Uh, we don't know how to live. We don't know what to do. We don't know what the purpose of life is. We are, we are dead in our transgressions and sins until the gospel comes. And once we learn the milk, the basics of the gospel, we are converted, but we have a long way to go in having a biblical worldview. And we need role models. And the Apostle Paul is the greatest role model of Christianity there has ever been, of course, not counting Jesus himself. Sure. He said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And so I think we're meant to go through Second Corinthians, the 13 chapters, and say, what attitudes and actions were habitually part of Paul's life that should be part of mine? And so when Paul talks about his suffering, his thorn in the flesh, and he has his he presents his attitude and what God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Uh, Paul says, therefore, I'm going to delight in all my weaknesses because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. We're supposed to imitate that thought process. We're supposed to realize that maybe a cancer diagnosis or some other malady or something that's really making our lives difficult, a thorn in the flesh, is, is a way that God is humbling us and making us rely on him in prayer when ordinarily we would be more independent. So I think in general, we come to 2 Corinthians and every chapter, every section, saying, how is the Apostle Paul a mentor or a role model for me in Christianity? Amen. That's convicting. Andy, what are some of the high points of this book? Well, that's going to be really hard. You know, before we began this podcast, I just went through, you know, the entire book and, and just, you know, looked at the text and reminded myself of all these great texts, these what some people would call proof texts, 
for this or that aspect of ministry or life. And I came up with 20 of them or something. I, it was just so many. So I don't even now, I, I, I think if I were to go in, in any depth, it would take a, a very long time. But let me just give you some of the highlights. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about his trial in the province of Asia, how he and his co-workers, he said, were under great pressure far beyond their ability to endure so that they despaired of life itself. So you talk about an extreme trial. But then Paul says this fascinating thing. This happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. I just circle that in my mind with a red pen saying self-reliance is one of the greatest enemies of the Christian life there is. It is to wean us off of self-reliance that the gospel does its full work on us. We relied on ourselves before we knew Christ. We thought we could save ourselves from all of our problems. We're very confident in this. But in comes the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. We realize we cannot save ourselves. We turn to a Savior, Christ. But the education on, on uh, relying on Christ and not on ourselves has really just begun. And Paul says, I was put in prison. I was pressed. I was tortured. For the, to the end that I would stop relying on myself to the level I was, and learn to re rely on God who raises the dead. And it's interesting he says who raises the dead because what he's saying there is I, the ultimate end of my salvation is my own resurrection from the, from the dead. And I have no power to make that happen. I'm totally going to be relying on God. When I lie down in death or when I'm executed or whatever, when I breathe my last breath on earth, I will be saying, if in effect, what Jesus said on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit. Only you, God, can raise me from the dead. So if we cannot do that ultimate thing, we have to learn how to rely on him for everything. So that's just one verse, 2 Corinthians 1.9. Uh, also in chapter 2, he talks about not being unaware of Satan's schemes. A Puritan writer uh, wrote uh, Thomas Brooks, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. It's just a different translation of the same verse, Satan's devices, his schemes. That Satan's a schemer. He's a plotter. He's playing chess with our souls. He's, he's positioning pieces and putting pressures on us. And to be aware of Satan. He said we're not unaware of Satan's schemes. Ironically, in that situation, he's talking about restoring a forgiven sinner, a sinner that had repented. This, I think, is the second act of the first act of, of, of church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul commanded them to excommunicate someone for sexual immorality. Now he's commanding the Corinthians to restore the repentant sinner back to full membership. So that's the rest of the equation there. Very important verse on restoring people. And, and yet Satan would have tricked them into not restoring the forgiven sinner you're like, well, why would Satan want that? So that the church would be a harsh, legalistic church that basically shoots its wounded. And there's no hope of restoration and all that. Satan wanted that. And Paul says, don't do that. Let's, let's uh, restore the forgiven sinners. That's chapter 2. And then in, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he talks about going from glory into glory or ever-increasing glory. This, this glorious new covenant, the superiority, the glory of the new covenant compared to the old. The old covenant was written in letters, engraved in letters on stone. The new covenant is written in our hearts by the Spirit. And then he, he says we're moving from glory into glory. That's the greatest description of sanctification I've ever heard. And frankly, it's interesting that growth and holiness and sanctification aren't even mentioned in the list, the sequential list of our salvation in Romans chapter 8. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Christ, that me, uh, image of his son, that we might be the first born among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he, whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Where's the internal journey? 
Where's sanctification? It's not mentioned, but I believe that it's subsumed under the word glorified. That our glorification has begun now, and it will continue like a dimmer switch from glory into glory, but a quantum leap when we die and at the second coming of Christ. That's the only explanation I can give for why he kind of skips sanctification in that list. I think he just looks on it as part of the glorification process. And this, 2 Corinthians 3.18, gives us evidence from glory into glory. Fantastic. Then 2 Corinthians 4.6 is probably the verse in this epistle I quote the most. It's the single most important verse in the New Testament, I believe, on regeneration or what actually is happening when you're born again. The radical change. Frankly, 2 Corinthians 5.17 also describes it uh, very powerfully and was the first verse I ever memorized in my Christian life. Uh, back at MIT when I was converted, we did the topical memory system that navigators uh, had, and 2 Corinthians 5.17 was the first verse in the packet, you know, uh, which uh, talks about the, the new creation. If anyone is in, in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Everything has become new, 2 Corinthians 5.17. But 2 Corinthians 4.6, I think, is even more impactful. Uh, and that says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So it harkens back to Genesis 1-3, where God said, let there be light. And God spoke into nothingness. He spoke into blackness, emptiness, uh, the word of his power, uh, a radiant light shining. And that light, uh, Paul, that image, Paul picks up and moves over into the spiritual dimension. The same God who created physical light now speaks a spiritual light into our hearts. And what kind of light is it? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So God speaks that light into a darkened heart at the moment of conversion. Uh, they're hearing the gospel, the bio, uh, sorry, biographical facts of Jesus. Um, this biography of Jesus, you know, he was born of the Virgin Mary, he lived a sinless life, he did this or that miracle, you know, the biography that's foundational of the gospel. But most importantly, he died as a substitute on the cross, and then God raised him from the dead. It's just this biography of Jesus, it's the facts of the gospel. Somewhere in there, if the person's elect, and today's the day of salvation, somewhere in there, the Holy Spirit speaks light into the darkened heart. And it's the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Christ is the radiance of God's glory. And the individual sees it for the first time, sees it. And, and I've said the partner concept here is if God says, let there be light, he has to also say, let there be sight. There's no point in there, in there being light if there's no sight. The light isn't for God, it's for his creatures, it's for us. He already knows everything. So he shines light to communicate truth to us. And the light of the heart, or sorry, the sight of the heart is faith. So God creates a, a, a light receptor for the invisible spiritual light of the glory of God in the face of Christ, and it's called faith. And at the moment of faith, we are justified, born again, forgiven. That's the beginning of the Christian life. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. I've described it many times, and it's one of the most powerful verses. Then the very next verse is powerful as well. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. So it just shows how fragile our brains are, our minds, and our bodies, that they are breaking apart. And so it, you know, to some degree answers issues of dementia, Alzheimer's, things like that, where people just lose capabilities. They lose mental power. They, they're not even able to articulate what they believe anymore. It doesn't mean they're not saved. It's just that their brains are falling apart. They're broken. They're decaying. 
but it doesn't mean that they're not saved anymore. It's just, you know, we have this treasure of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ in a jar of clay, namely our skulls, our brains. You know, there's a physicality to it. And when that brain falls apart, like it does sometimes in, in aging, we're not able to articulate what we, what we love and what we truly believe. And, and not just our brains, but just our bodies are falling apart. We, we're getting old, we're, we have injuries, we have diseases, things like that, jars of clay. Yeah. And then Second Corinthians uh, 5, by the way, in general, Second Corinthians 5 is the single greatest chapter in the entire Bible on, uh, on motivations for evangelism. We can circle back on that later if you want. It's just a powerful chapter. You know, why should I evangelize? Why should I get involved in missions? Second Corinthians 5 has every answer you need. Because again, Paul's presenting himself as a role model, his motivations, why he does what he does in the ministry of the new covenant, in the, in the preaching ministry. But there in Second Corinthians 5, uh, 9 and 10, he says, we make it our goal to please him, whether in the body or out of the body. He said, why? Because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. That is, to some people, a shocking verse. People aren't fully aware that they're going to have to stand before Christ and give an account for everything they did in the body, good or bad. It's almost, sometimes I've seen people when they read this, like they do a double take. It's like, I didn't know that was in there. You know, it's like, wait a minute now. Yeah, I got thought, me the first time. I've had people, you know, quote Romans 8.1 and say, well, my Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like, I'm not talking about common common condemnation. I'm talking about giving an account. Yeah, You're not going to hell, but you're going to give Jesus an answer for what you did. And he's going to look at you with those pure, holy eyes and ask, why did you do that? And it's like, wow. And so I just say, look, if you don't want to give an account for something to Jesus, then don't do it. <laughs> yeah. It's a motivation for holiness. Anyway, that's Paul's motivation. We're going to give an account for everything done. And that's the, you know, that's the parable uh, of the stewardship. You know, the stewards, the, the, you know, the master entrusts property and goes away on a journey and comes back and says, give me an account for what you did. There's many parables like that. So I'm, I'm actually surprised how surprised Christians are. It's like, you didn't know this was part of the deal? <laughs> God is giving you things. He's giving you money. He's giving you, giving you a spouse, children, a career. He's giving you stuff. There is definitely a string attached. And the string is it's his, and he's going to want an account for it. Anyway, 2 Corinthians 5.10. And I already quoted 2 Corinthians 5.17. We're a new creation. Uh, old is gone. Everything is new. And then he, calls, he says that God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.18. This sounds like a greatest hits album. Uh, that you hear all of these verses. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21, which probably I quote almost as much as 2 Corinthians 4.6. Uh, speaking about substitutionary atonement, God made Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of, of God. So that's substitutionary atonement, one of the most, the deepest, richest verses, and it'll blow your mind. How could this sinless being be our sin substitute, be sin for us? How could we have his righteousness? 2 Corinthians 5.21. Then Paul goes through his hardships, 2 Corinthians 6. Uh, the listing there, I won't read it, but you know, he had a hard life. And you look at that and you're like, what am I complaining for? You look at the kinds of things that Paul went through. Um, in 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be yoked to unbelievers. It's a very important verse on not marrying non-Christians, on perhaps not going into business uh, covenants or agreements with unbelievers. Uh, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Very important verse. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7.1, I've heard quoted many times in terms of just sanctification and holiness. It says, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. That's a great holiness verse. 
get rid of everything that contaminates you spiritually. And, uh, and then later he, in that same chapter, he gives a description of true repentance that we have used again and again. So we're talking about people that are struggling with sin. Uh, they're in the process or in the pipeline of church discipline. We're trying to work with them, bring them to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.11 says what it looks like. It says, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. These are heart states of eagerness to make it right. If you don't see that kind of stuff in somebody, they're not repentant. And so we read that verse a lot, 2 Corinthians 7 11. And then 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, those two chapters, like a, a guidebook on Christian giving. Yeah, absolutely. With, with the central verse, 2 Corinthians 8 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty may be, might become rich. Very important verse on the incarnation and Jesus' motivation. But then he says, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. You know, you want to you reap a great harvest, then sow a lot. And he's talking about money. So that's some of the most important verses on Christian giving. And then 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, I quote all the time on spiritual warfare. Uh, I use this again and again. It says, though we live in the world, we do not wage war, uh, war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we are ready to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Those are important verses on spiritual warfare, what we do in evangelism, destroying arguments. And an argument there is not like having an argument, but making an argument like a lawyer does. So a lawyer makes a closing argument um, or, or the, the key argument in the case, that kind of thing. It's logic, it's words, it's reasons. We blow those things up. There are faulty arguments surrounding us with the corrupted worldview that we're, we're swimming against constantly in our society. Could have to do with abortion, could have to do with the LGBT agenda, transgenderism, could have to do with all kinds of controversial topics. And we blow up arguments. We don't blow people up. We want to save people. But these arguments are like invisible chains around their souls, drawing them toward hell. And we want to blow up those arguments so that they can see the truth. And it's just warfare. You know, we don't wage war as the world does, but we do wage war. And it's a, a war of ideas, of concepts, of truth. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. And then he talks about his sufferings in chapter 11, you know, after going through the thing with the false uh, apostles, the uh, super apostles who are discrediting his ministry. He's like, all right, let's compare resumes. Mm, yeah. And uh, he's like, <laughs> let me tell you something about my life. Yeah. And it's just when you read his resume of suffering in 2 Corinthians 11, it, it's staggering. It's absolutely staggering. Think about this. Five times I was given the 40 lashes. Minus one, it's hard to even picture. You know, his back was shredded five times. Like healed, and then scars though, and then shredded again. Three times I was beaten with rods. Oh, that was different. So eight times, five with lashes, three with rods. Oh yeah, once I was stoned. Well, that's dead, dead, execution. Some people think Paul actually literally did die and God raised him back up out of the pile of stones. And if you circle a particular moment in the book of Acts, you can think that might have been it where he, you know, might, might have even died. And he gets up and he goes and preaches again the next day. The guy was unbelievable. Wow. 
and and then you look at shipwrecks you look at i spent a night and a day in the open sea i think he always mentions night first because it started at night and then the sun came up so you imagine treading water or finding some piece of flotsam or jetsam to hold on to while you're you know just trying to survive i mean what a hard hard life and therefore i really believe with his incarcerations with his beatings with the stoning with his rejection by his people he you know the jewish leaders hated him the fact that some swore themselves under oath to not eat again until they had assassinated him i mean the hatred that paul uh, that 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 uh, satan had for him and and the way he unleashed his minions against paul again and again it's like top priorities to kill this man and, you know, how Ananias was told at, at Paul's conversion, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. I do believe with all my heart that no one has suffered as much for the gospel in church history as the Apostle Paul. And then in chapter 12, he talks about being caught up to paradise, you know, uh, which gives you an indication of the kind of elevation, the kind of things the Holy Spirit can do in giving us a foretaste of heaven. He did it with the Apostle John, and he did it also with Paul, where both, both John and Paul were caught up to heaven. John was invited in Revelation 4 to go through a doorway, and he saw a throne with someone seated on it. Um, now, I'm not expecting that to ever happen to me, but you know we can ask for God to reveal heavenly glory to us, and he could do that amazingly in prayer. And then, as I've mentioned, the thorn in the flesh. So that's 2 Corinthians. What an incredible book. Wow, that's great stuff, Andy. You know, I want to rewind a bit. Mm-hmm. You said something about... Uh, in chapter five, uh, the single greatest chapter of uh, motivation for evangelism yeah. and missions. Um, mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that? Oh yeah, and I would just commend it to you. Um, Paul just walks through his motivations. Um, you know, he begins by talking about the resurrection body. He calls his present body a tent. So just knowing that our, our time here on earth is temporary, just start there. You know, whatever would hold you back from evangelism, just realize um, that our time here is brief. So we live in a tent of this body and our a permanent dwelling, our resurrection body is yet to come. So just realizing the temporal nature of our lives here uh, is just very, very short. And then he talks about God has given us the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. So just knowing that we are going to heaven when we die, no matter what difficulties evangelism may bring in our lives or missions, just know that we've got heaven to wait for and it's coming. And, and so we've got everything we need and so we have nothing to lose. And so it, it frees you up the more you meditate on that. And then he, he talks about, um, as I mentioned, we make it our goal to please him. This is the central ambition of Paul's life. In everything I do, I want to please the Lord. So more and more that we would evangelize because we want to please the Lord. And he, and he says it very, very powerfully and clearly. And then the fact that we all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that we may give him an account for everything done in the body, whether whether good or bad. So what that means is that unique circumstances, like take a plane ride sitting next to a total stranger, you got about three hours on the plane with the individual, someday Jesus is gonna ask you to give an account for that time. I just think about that. You know, um, I I would like to have been faithful. Doesn't mean I can always evangelize. If they put in the earbuds, we're done. You know, I'm not going to ask him to have a conversation, et cetera. But if sure. we're talking, et cetera. So just giving an account is a, a, a motivation. And then he said, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. The fear of the Lord is a motivation. And here's the thing. I fear the Lord being displeased with me. But I think the fear of the Lord in that verse is much more we ought to fear on their behalf. They are like 
jumping up and down on a rotten plank over the fire of hell. I mean, they, they should fear death in their present spiritual state, but they don't. Absolutely don't. And so I need to fear the Lord on their behalf, what God will do if they die in an unconverted state. So there's the fear of hell on their behalf. Um, he also uh, talks about the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ constrains us to evangelize. Our love for Christ should make us evangelize, but you could also look at it love of Christ. We don't know what that means. It could be Christ's love. In other words, the way that Christ loved his enemies, the way he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The way that he loved people, that compels us to live for others and to evangelize and to share the gospel. Just line after line. From now on, we no longer regard anyone in a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded people that way, we don't regard them that way any longer. We're, we have to stop being deceived like, uh, by Satan about what this world is all about. Somebody's wealthy and powerful and, and, and popular and handsome and all that. Don't look at any of that. That stuff's all going to go away and they're going to stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account for their sins. And if they're not Christians, they're going to go to hell. So don't look on people in a worldly way. Don't be impressed by their trappings. They are souls in need of a savior, just seeing them that way. Um, and then at the end, he says, we are, you know, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation as though God were in us making his appeal, pleading with people. We implore you, be reconciled to God. This is evangelism. This is what's happening. And then the substitutionary atonement, the doctrine that's central to the gospel. God made him, Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. My goodness, 2 Corinthians 5 should give you everything you need to be active in evangelism. Andy, how does chapter 11 give us a sense of the greatness of Paul's courage in serving Christ? Well, I think we covered that a few minutes ago. I guess I kind of stole the thunder out of that question. Um, I think I'm just looking forward to walking through it in the future podcast, but, you know, just the, the, the sufferings that he went through. I guess the way I look at it is this. If, if, I, if Paul learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want, if he could do everything through him who strengthens him, then, then our much less sufferings, and Paul also in this same book, 2 Corinthians, calls our sufferings light and momentary. 2 Corinthians 4.17, our sufferings are light and momentary. Wow. Now, if he didn't have that... that uh, resume, those credentials of suffering, then we would dismiss him. But someone who suffered more than anyone you have ever known in your life or read about in your life, no one suffered more than Paul. I'm including all of the Christian martyrs you've ever read about because Paul was a martyr. Yeah. And so were they. But his life was harder leading up to his martyrdom than theirs was. <laughs> it's not a single martyr. William Tyndale was a martyr. He was in, in hiding and doing his translation work, and then he was arrested for a time, and so he was in prison, but Paul was again and again and again and again. He was cold. He asked for some friends to bring him a cloak, Second Timothy 4, so did Paul. I mean, nobody can compare with Paul. Nobody. Yeah. And so for me, I guess, first of all, it, it takes the sting out of any earthly circumstance I'm suffering, but also it's inspirational. Well, before we close today, Andy, any final thoughts for us? 
I am excited. I mean, the more we talk about it, I feel like I just want to go on and just do more and more podcasts on this. It's going to be an exciting study. So I'm looking forward to it. Great. Well, that's all we have for this introduction to Second Corinthians. Uh, Wes will be back next week, and Andy and Wes will start episode one of Second Corinthians. If you want to follow along, please go to twojourneys.org and download the Second Corinthians Bible study questions. Well, thanks for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.